We live in a world plagued by pornography, and people are looking for help. When an individual struggles with pornography, they often turn to their church leader for that help. How does a leader help a person overcome the shame of this issue and start seeing positive progress? How can a leader help youth to open up about struggles with pornography? What are some lasting, proven tactics that actually make a difference? In order to help, Leading Saints has created the Liberating Saints Library with more than 20 presentations featuring individuals who have a unique perspective or expertise around this topic. Three of those most popular sessions are available to watch now. Simply text the word LEAD to 474747 to start watching now or visit leadingsaints.org liberating. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to access the three most popular sessions of the Liberating Saints Library. Welcome back to the Leading Saints podcast. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation, much like this podcast. We have articles at leadingsaints.org you should check out. A weekly newsletter you should subscribe to also has unique content. So let's jump into this week's episode. Today I'm in uh, in a beautiful family room with Gene Chittister. Did I say your name right, Gene? You got it right. Oh, Thank good. you. And it's an honor to have you with us. Well, I'm excited to be here. Now, I first, uh, I don't know if this is my first uh, time I heard your name, but you were on the Latter-day Lives podcast with my friend Sean Rapier, and uh, you also help out with that podcast. Is that right? Yeah. So, for, since about June, I've been the producer of that podcast. Nice. And met wonderful people. Just some amazing experiences we've heard. Nice. And we're, so we're fellow podcasters to some extent. Maybe you're not always on the mic, but uh, you're in the in the good work of it, right? I, I am. Nice. I'm really enjoying it. Cool. And how did you, were you, I'm trying to remember, did you listen to that podcast or reach out to Sean or? Yes, that's exactly what happened. I started listening to his podcast probably about two and a half, three years ago. Just really impressed. And then um, earlier this year, he had actually suspended the podcast about a year ago uh-huh. for a period of time. And then uh, he restarted it and put out a, a help wanted, if you will, looking for a producer. And I just felt impressed. I, I reached out to him and told him I'd be interested. And so that's great. And you're, and you're making it happen. So making it happen. That's cool. Now, um, I'll, I'll definitely will link to that episode because you, you talk about your life there and maybe some ang- the parts of your life that we won't cover here, but it's a, it's a good listen. And if you're not familiar with the Latter day Lives podcast, a good introduction to see just sort of the type of people they interview. And then John interviewed me at one point, but I'm lower on the list and people have long forgotten about that episode. But now how would you describe like uh, your leadership experience in the church? I mean, you've been around the block a few times when it comes to church leadership. You know, looking back, had just about, I've served in about every organization in the church, including in the Relief Society for a brief time as a missionary, (laughs) uh, in, in the primary, long before it was vogue for uh, brethren to serve in the primary. Uh-huh. My parents taught me from a very early age, when you're asked to serve, you serve. Mm-hmm. So that was never a question. Yeah. And so my very first calling was when I was 12 years old, I was called to 
be the deacons quorum president over the third quorum of deacons in our ward. <laughs> wow. We, a lot of deacons. Yeah, over 30 deacons. Wow. And, and I was blessed to have a wonderful advisor who understood a little bit about uh, shadow leadership and he understood about ministering. I think he was a man ahead of his time. We'd yeah. go out and do visits. We'd walk up to the door and he'd say, remember, you're the president. And he, he'd just ask me to lead out and <laughs> wow. know, I learned a lot. Yeah. Wonderful. And after that, I mean, as you maybe matured into your adult years, was there a specific calling where it was sort of, you think back, like that was the beginning of your, your leadership experience as an adult? I'd have to say when I was early in our marriage as a student, married student down at BYU, I was called to be a young men's president. This was in the Man of Award just off campus. One of the young men, the, well, we had Hugh Nibley was in our ward, so there were a couple of kids. He had a daughter and, and a son that was in the mutual at uh-huh. that time. It was a very small ward. I was the young men's president, also deacon's quorum advisor, teacher's quorum advisor, and priest advisor. I was the entire young men's presidency. <laughs> wow. But we had a wonderful bishop, and, and it was an opportunity to step up in the lead. Yeah. And, uh, and where did you serve your mission as a young man? Argentina. Nice. And that later led to your time as a mission president in Uruguay, right? Yeah, that's correct. And, Although there'd been 30 years in between and, and I had not used the language, pretty well forgotten it. Yeah. When President Monson extended the call to preside over a Spanish-speaking mission, I said, that would be wonderful. There's one problem is I don't speak Spanish and I did not get any empathy. Yeah. <laughs> he said, oh, it'll come back. Nice. How long do you feel like it took to kind of get a handle of it again? Well, we were called... Um, Right after Thanksgiving in 1999, and then, of course, we would be leaving and to be down in Uruguay in uh, the first part of July. The week after we received the call from President Monson, we got a call from the uh, senior MTC, and it was a sister who was, um, she's from, I believe, the Dominican Republic, speaking in Spanish to me. It sounded like she's speaking very fast. I don't think she was. But <laughs> and I, I it was just kind of leaning on every word, trying to understand what she was saying. And she, uh, the message was, the brethren are very concerned that mission presidents and their companions are showing up in their field of labors, not being able to communicate with their native missionaries nor the members. Hmm. So she offered to uh, customize a Spanish learning program for each of us. And she said, when do you want to get started? So uh, we took her up on her offer uh, for six months. We had a room down in the uh, Provo MTC. We would go down on Friday, sleep there Friday nights, be there all day Friday and all day Saturday. And uh, my wife had her own tutor, and I had mine. And so six months, and it started coming back. Hmm. It was a lot of work. Yeah. It started coming back. Yeah. Wow. And then then you came home from your mission, and then how long until you were called as an Area 70? So we got back from our mission in 2003, and I was called as an Area 70 in 2012. Oh, okay. And so in the interim, I had a number of different callings. When we got back, I believe the first calling I had was teacher's quorum advisor which was a little bit of a challenge because I'd just come off of three years of young men and young sisters wanting to hear what I had to say yeah, and wanting to listen to me. <laughs> Hanging on to each word, right? Hanging on to each word. And then I, <laughs> and all of a sudden, every Sunday, I'm in a classroom with young men leaning on their chairs, doing things, rolling their eyes. And so, but they were good nice. young men. Nice. And, and so, and then from there, I, I worked a lot in the Hispanic Initiative, hmm. um, mostly in Northern Utah. Yeah. So that was wonderful. Nice. And is there a story behind when you were called as an Area 70? How did that process go? Uh, yeah, it just came completely out of the blue, which was uh, something I've never understood because we'd had promptings on, a, I'd say, about every significant calling I'd had. 
as a bishop twice, as a um, into a state presidency, mission presidency, had had some promptings that something was coming. And one day we got a call from Elder uh, J. Jensen's office inviting us down to visit with him. Hmm. I thought, well, he had been our area president when we were down in Uruguay. Maybe he just wants to say hi. He hadn't, hadn't seen him for a while. And I thought, well, if it's not that, it's it's probably uh, Sister Chittister's going to be called to something. She had served on some church committees, and so we thought maybe that's what this was all about. Hmm. And we got down there and uh, chatted for a while and, and he, um, handed Robin a letter from the First Presidency and asked her to read it. It was extending the call to me to be an Area 70. Completely blown away. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what did they give you much as far as like what to expect, or what your responsibility would be, or anything like that? So um, I was referred to, um, there was a series of video training that President Packer, some uh, video clips, and from what I remember, they were six or seven minutes long. Uh, Elder Rasband interviewed President Packer about what is an area of 70. Hmm. And I can't remember how many different video, videos they were, but one of the things, comments that President Packer made that I, would turn out to be very telling because uh, Elder Has- Rasband asked him that very question. What kind of training is there for Area 70s? And he basically said, not much. They don't need much. Uh-huh. They're, they're very experienced brethren. Uh-huh. And it turned out to be true. Yeah, so, so away you went, right? Away we went. Nice, nice. Well, you know, as, as we do with these interviews, I had to think through some uh, general leadership principles that maybe you've uh, relied on during your very system roles and assignments. And as we go through these, maybe there'll be some stories and uh, applications that come to the surface that we can we can explore. But the, first of all, you, you mentioned just as far as defining leadership. And I think this is a good place to start with anything, right? It's defining it how you see it and whatnot. So I would define the leadership as a process mm-hmm. and as a process of exerting um, influence over others and leading towards some, some type of a desired outcome. Mm-hmm. And so given that it's a process, it can be improved because all processes can be improved. Yeah. And given that it's a process, it can be observed, learned, it can be trained. So I, I think there might be some misconceptions and fallacies in the church that, well, they'll never call me to that leadership position because I'm not a leader. Mm-hmm. And I think that's false. Yeah. Anyone can <laughs> learn those skills because it's a process. And by observing, studying, and reading, people can learn how to lead. And so I view leadership as exerting social influence over others. Yeah. And then I, I like to think of, so what are the attributes that are required? And we can re- refer to Doctrine and Covenants 121 uh, towards the end in uh, verses 41 and 42, talks about the attributes of persuasion, long-suffering, gentleness, and meekness, and love and feigned kindness. Those are the attributes that are required to be an effective leader. As opposed to power. And we might look at a position or callings in the church and say, with that inherent in that position would be power. That'll only go so far. Mm-hmm. And people will not, will not sustain a person who derives their, who, who drives by power rather than exerting yeah. proper influence. So connecting that with like the leadership as being a system, like what does that look like maybe for a leader? Like if you're getting a time machine, go back to President Chittister's day one, you know, in Uruguay. How do you begin to coach someone into seeing leadership as a system? So, so I would define it as uh, that there are, oh, I'd say probably at least four key elements of uh, leadership processes. And the first one starts with vision. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the, the leader's responsibility to create and convey mental 
and verbal pictures and of a desired outcome, of a desired goal. And for example, I can, going back to Uruguay, and this is something that came to me very early on when I was there, an impression of what would the vision for this mission be? And it came to me that what I wanted missionaries to do is to walk in the streets. I wanted them to think about ordinances. And so we came up with the phrase, uh, today's face is in, in Blanco, three times in white. And so I asked our missionaries, and this is one we talked about often, as they would see people, see them in your mind dressed in white three times, hmm. the day of their baptism, in the temple, and in the celestial kingdom. And that, that takes you right to the end. And so, so that's what a, a leader does, and that's a leader's responsibility is to create that vision and then get the followers to buy into that vision and to accept it. Yeah. And I, and I want to highlight this, this concept of like having a, like just saying, you know, three times in white, like that's a very catchy, like, but it mainly, it immediately focuses individuals on what the grander vision is of, of the people that you're, you're interacting with, right? Well, and, and the beauty of that one is it focuses on ordinances, mm-hmm. baptism and temple. And, and so leadership in the church really ought to have that same kind of focus. Mm. So that's the vision. And so to bishops and, and members of ward councils listening to this podcast, what is your vision? And what is, what is your vision for the people in your organization, in your ward or in your Relief Society? And think of ways to convey that vision. And then, and then you work to get people to buy into the vision. Yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, so what else as far as the, the key leadership? So the first, the key leadership processes. So the first being vision, anything else with, with vision or what comes after that? So, so then we talk about uh, creating a, a shared plan and I'll, and I'll underscore and underline the word shared. We create a plan leading that will get us to the desired outcomes. Hmm. And, but I use the word shared. We want the ward council. We want the followers to participate in creating this plan. That way they get ownership. That way, it's not just the bishop's plan or just the primary president's plan or just the elder scorn's president's plan. It's our plan. And so it becomes the shared plan. And it's, uh, it's developed and facilitated uh, by the followers. Now, now, key in all of this is, is delegation. And I'm a firm and big believer in the need in, for leaders to delegate to their followers. Sometimes it can be a challenge for people who who are, are very talented, very skilled, they see something that needs to be done and it would be just much easier for them to do it. And they, they look at somebody in the room and say, he or she, they've never done that. And it, it's going to take some time and we got to, well, what happens is things start piling up at the bishop's desk if he's not delegating and things aren't moving ahead mm-hmm. and people in that room are not growing. So what delegation does, it gives the opportunity, it gets the buy-in because that person now uh, who has been given that responsibility, they're getting bought into that process as well. The person doing the delegating needs to set the expectations, needs to provide the appropriate resources, and needs to follow up. And so what will come from that is then the followers are a lot, that gives them growth opportunities. Yeah. So. And so is the delegation sort of part of that, that shared plan approach or is that? Yeah, that, that, okay. that, that's part of it. So who's going to carry out the plan? Gotcha. You know, so, and, and so we, we develop a plan and it'll have specific tasks that need to be done and who's going to do that. And then the leader is, has the responsibility to make it very clear what the expectations are, mm-hmm. including time frame and desired outcome. Yeah. And then provides input. We counsel together 
And then there's ongoing and consistent follow-up. Yeah. Now, part of that, then as we develop these shared plans, is we, we develop appropriate metrics and measures. Uh, President Thomas S. Monson taught that when performance is measured, performance improves. When performance is measured and reported, the rate of per- improvement accelerates, close quote. Yeah. And I have found that to be also true. What I've also found out about metrics is as you're dealing with an organization, you need to keep them focused and understood, and they need to affect the desired result. Few measures are good. And the plan and the measures that are selected to track the performance to the plan, the measures need to be something that the followers can affect. Hmm. Otherwise, you're going to frustrate them. Yeah. You know, we're being measured on number of baptisms. Well, do I have, do I have a... Do I have control towards that? Do I have input towards that? Yeah, I mean, that's dependent on other people's decisions, right? And, and right. right, yeah. So the measures need to be something that those on the ward council can affect. And they can see that by by their performance, they'll be able to move the needle. Yeah. And so that, as far as those like shared plan, like as far as like developing that plan, and obviously I'm just curious on maybe the, the stakes that you would visit as an Area 70, like how could a state go about to put together a plan. Obviously, it starts with that vision, but then what does the nuts and bolts look like after that? So, let's go uh, a little bit upstream and, and actually have quite a bit of experience with this. The role of the 70 is to carry out the mission of the 12. Mm-hmm. They, they represent the 12. Yeah. And the 12, and so, as a 70 goes around, he represents the 12. And, and a, the responsibility of the 70 is to make sure he clearly understands where the 12 sit and their positions are and what, what their areas concerns are and what their focus are. And so we, we would have regular training and then working with the area presidency who have the direct contact with the 12 on an ongoing basis, the area presidency then develops an area plan. That area plan then gets passed to the state presidents and then the state presidents then will tweak and adjust their stake plan, but it's under the umbrella of the area plan. Mm-hmm. And then the state president then works with his bishops and that it just it just funnels all the way down to the end of the row to how does the primary president relate to this area plan hmm. upstream. Yeah. Yeah. And and as far as like cuz sometimes it'd be difficult in the, on the stake level and the ward level to you know if they don't understand that area plan and maybe it's hard to fit that into your agenda, right? And and whatnot, when you sort of want to carry out maybe a different agenda, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's important that we recognize in the church, we do, that this vision we talked about earlier is, needs to be supportive of, of the brethren. And mm-hmm. President Nelson on down, what is their vision? And in this vision we have for our ward or our organization, is it consistent and is it under that is it under that umbrella? Yeah. President Packer talks about which way do you face? Hmm. And so our responsibility as leaders is to face the brethren, understand what their hopes and expectations are, and then do our part to turn and implement that as we lead those people in our congregations. Yeah. Not the other way around of well, here's here are the needs of the people of the organization I think I know better than what President Nelson might know. Mm-hmm. So the question is, which way do you face? Yeah. So anything else in relation to the shared plan principle or process? I think the other thing is just to make sure that the goals metric, the goals we have in place are that the members of the of the team, the followers, are bought into them. 
they agree and they're supportive and that they're working to make them happen. And then don't be afraid to make adjustments as you go along. Yeah. Because things can change. Yeah. So what else as far as uh, key leadership processes that you so, found effective? So, so we have a plan and then we, uh, uh, we implement it and we, we measure it as we're going along. And I think, and I won't go a lot into that, but I think the last thing I would say is when appropriate, celebrate successes. Hmm. And sometimes that can be, there can be a goal that's set up front. And if we achieve this goal, here's what we'll do. Or it might be at the end, uh, there, there's some celebration of we've all worked together and we've worked hard and let, let's celebrate the success. I'll give you an example from our mission. We've been in our mission oh, a couple months and I, I felt it would be appropriate that we establish an overall mission baptism goal. And that was the only goal I wanted to, to establish. And I remember where I was, the moment I was standing in front of 80 missionaries in his own conference, and a number popped in my head. And it was a baptismal goal for the whole mission, which was almost double where we currently were. Hmm. And so I just threw it out there. There were some gasps. <laughs> I heard later that uh, President Chittister is new. He doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> and, and I said, so when we achieve this goal, Sister Chittister will make cinnamon rolls for the entire mission. <laughs> It took till that following July, and we achieved the goal. And we went around and and delivered cinnamon rolls to the entire mission. We, we hauled a microwave and cold <laughs> milk, and the missionaries that were there still talk about that. Nice. And just kind of a, a follow-on comment to that, when we established that goal, I knew it was just the beginning, uh -huh. which it turned out to be. Yeah. But just taking that moment of of celebrating that rather than, all right, we got that. Let's move on to the next thing. Uh, just, creating some yeah, it, space. It, it was acknowledgement of, uh, of a job well done, but a lot of effort by an entire mission. Yeah. So. That's cool. Uh, awesome. Let's go back up here. Is anything else? Uh, well, as far as like uh, you mentioned power and influence, anything we haven't discussed uh, with those two aspects? Yeah. So let's go back to Dr. Covenant's uh, 121, 39 through 41. It talks about unrighteous dominion. Yeah. And I would suggest that uh, when a leader approaches their responsibility, not to influence, but to power and overpower people, mm. that that might be unrighteous dominion. But if there is such a thing as unrighteous dominion, I would suggest there's such a thing as righteous dominion. And, mm. and I would say that that's the ability to exert proper influence for our followers. Yeah. And how have you seen, like, when you felt like you were in that zone, what did that often look like? Or... Because I, I, especially with missionaries, I would imagine that sometimes you just like, you just want them to comply. You just do what President Jesus says, and this will be great. But then there's other times where it feels like, man, I'm, I feel like I'm more in that zone that Dr. Graham's 121 talks about. Any Anything come to mind as far as what that looks like? Well, what it looks like is when, when the spirit is there in full abundance and directing it. I've found in looking back that if those I'm charged to lead feel and know and recognize that I love them, mm. and I love those that they are leading, it makes all the difference. Yeah. As opposed to if a leader is perceived to have his or her own personal agenda, and people are questioning, why is he doing this? Why is she doing that? But when the motives are pure, and people really sense a great love, and that, that we're doing this because we love God and we love his children, mm -hmm. that to me is always the telling feature. One of the things I've learned over the years is that God truly loves his children. Yeah. And he really wants them back home. And so as leaders, we have an opportunity to participate in that process of helping God's children back home. And I'll, I'll share an experience 
again, from our mission in Uruguay. This happened about three months after we got down there. There was this elder who had three months left in his mission. He, I don't think his mission was what he had hoped it would be. Hmm. By the time I got there, I think he'd pretty well given up. And he was, um, he was pretty negative and critical of me. He just was a thorn in my side. He just went, he did about everything he could do. He knew every hot button I had, <laughs> and he was really good at hitting everyone. Oh, wow. And so here it comes time for him to leave. And I had uh, made a personal goal before we got down to Uruguay that um, that final interview I'd have with a missionary would be positive, would be upbeat, because I recognized what was going to happen as I was sending these missionaries back into the world. Even though they'd been maybe 8,000 miles away from home, they'd really been in a protected state as the Lord set apart servants mm-hmm. and being a missionary. And so I always wanted that that final interview to be just a positive uplifting. Well, here, I still remember to this day being in this mission, in the mission home, doing these final interviews where these missionaries are going home. And, and I knew this elder was the next one to come into the office. And I closed the door before he came in. And I got on my knees and I asked for help because I, I didn't want to be disingenuous. Yeah. But I didn't have real positive feelings towards him. And so I asked for help. He, I got up, I invited him in, he sat down. And um, here we go. <laughs> I took a deep breath and I looked up and over his shoulder, and this was a, the first office I had down there was really tiny. It was almost like a closet. And on that back wall, there's a painting of the red robe Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I heard in my mind, tell him I love him. <laughs> that, wow, there's the answer to my prayer. And so I looked at this elder and I said, elder, I want you to know that the Lord loves you. And oh, by the way, I do too. And for me, the great takeaway is that that God loves all of his children. And, and, and however however nominal or minimal that elder's contribution was, the Lord loved him for it. Mm-hmm. And I think so it is as, as we serve in, in wards. Yeah. And just communicating that, right? And I'm curious with this, uh, you know, this is a process that probably becomes quite routine by the end of your time as a mission president, but just those, those final interviews, anything else that you did or approach, regardless of who it was you were meeting with, to make that a, a positive experience for that missionary? Boy, that's a, that's a good question. I can tell you, uh, the longer I was there, the greater love I developed for each of these missionaries because mm. we love those we serve. Yeah. And I can tell you, to, you know, in the last two years, those that we'd served with, the last, what would it be the last year or so, those we'd served with that we'd picked up at the airport and now we're taken back to the airport. And we had been through a lot of battles mm-hmm. and I had seen a lot of growth. And it was, I don't know if this is the answer to your question, but but the love came very easy. Yeah. And so the focus, and I would go back to that experience I just shared with you. I knew that these were sons and daughters of God who had given of their life two years or a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And I love them for that. Yeah, and the more you serve with them as you got more familiar with it, that, that love naturally just flows, right? It sure did. And we had some very tender experiences. And I, I remember particularly when our Latin missionaries would be ending their missions, wondering if I'd ever see them again. Yeah. And many have not, but a whole bunch I have. And it's just been wonderful. Yeah, that's great. And then you mentioned uh, before we hit record as far as like, as you visited different stakes as an area 70 and, and councils, like really emphasizing the the people and ordinances being the the main focus of, of a lot of these council meetings. And this is a difficult thing, a difficult dynamic as a, you know, as a new bishop or even in presidency meetings to, it's easy to sort of default to the the administrative points, right? Uh, so 
maybe unpack that this approach as far as the focus of people and ordinances. Okay. So I think we, as bishops, uh, we'll, we'll run and lead a, a ward council the way we were trained. And sometimes that might be appropriate. Sometimes it's <laughs> might be time to step back and say. False traditions of our fathers, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there might be a better way to do this. And I think we also, in ward council meetings or presidency meetings, will default to where we're comfortable. Yeah. And very often, this is the administrative task. I'm real, real comfortable with the numbers or the reports. But I'm not so sure that that's a good use of time. And that's not so sure that's going to accomplish uh, our desired outcomes. What we're trying to do is help our Heavenly Father's children get back home. How do they get back home? They receive the necessary ordinances, and they keep the covenants they've made associated with those covenants. I think in the church sometimes, we make it way too complex. And we, you know, back in the days when we had Boy Scouts and other things, and, and those, as good as those programs were and are and can be, sometimes they, they can really get in the way of the essentials. Hmm. And I really like President Nelson talks. You remember when he was uh, the first press conference he had when he became the prophet was at the temple and talking about the temple. And President Nelson talks about we start with the end in mind. And if you listen closely to him, he talks implied in, in uh, most everything he says is the importance of ordinances leading up to the temple. So back to how do we, what do we do in to be effective leaders in presidency meetings or ward councils, I would suggest that we set calendaring aside, the administrative matters aside. Most all of those things can be done outside the meeting. Yeah. What we ought to do is come prepared to talk about specific individuals and their needs and ask this question, who needs an ordinance? I remember uh, being down in Uruguay and being... Uh, been invited to a, a state conference, and the 70 that came in for the leadership meeting broke up everybody into the wards. He gave them a worksheet, and he asked them to identify people, and then he had, some, he had the bishop come up and report, mm -hmm. and had listed all the, the saving ordinances, and asked them to identify two people in their stewardship that had need for an ordinance, mm -hmm. a specific ordinance. Well, I, I followed that in, in many uh, state conferences. And as I went around and I visited a lot of ward councils, and that would be some, something I would suggest that, that any bishop consider strongly is talk about people and who needs an ordinance and who, who hasn't partaken of the sacrament for a while. What seven-year-olds are coming up needing to be prepared for baptism? And, and the primary president can come in prepared to talk about that. Release really city president can come in and talk about some woman that might benefit by going to the temple and receiving endowments, or some couple, Naylor's Quorum can, presidency can be prepared also to identify people who are in need of ordinances. Because when all is said and done, that's what we offer. And that's what the true church is all about. We don't have in the church, we don't have a corner on love for the Lord. Yeah, that's for sure. In my current calling, I, uh, Sister Chittister and I serve on what's called the Davis Communication Council. It's kind of think public affairs. That's what it used to be. Okay. In our specific responsibility, we work with um, interfaith groups, the Spanish groups, and we work with some pastors, and we, we have attended services and have learned that they have a great love for the Lord, a sincere great love for the Lord. We don't have a corner on that. 
But what we do have is we have the priesthood of God, which allows and facilitates ordinances. And so that's, that's really what sets us apart. And that's where we ought to be focusing our efforts and our time. Yeah, that's really helpful. So I'm, maybe this is sort of a, a fire round here is that I want to jump around to some of these callings. You mentioned you're serving in a public affairs or communications capacity right now. And I've interviewed several individuals, especially outside of Utah, where the communications council is uh, maybe a little more obvious as far as their place. Inside of Utah, they're so saturated with with members. And I feel like there's a lot of stakes to sort of dismiss that. Like, well, yeah, well, there's somebody in the stake that does it, or we'll sign a high councilman or whatever. And but we really don't know what to do with it. So I'm curious from your experience now being in communications in, uh, in Davis County and whatnot, like what are we missing or what's the best approach as far as an inside of Utah or a saturated area of Latter-day Saints? How can we effectively go about that role in, in communications? So I, I think the communication council plays such a valuable role in connecting these stakes to these other faiths and mm-hmm. other faith groups. And I'll give you an example in our case. And this goes back about a year ago. So we've had this calling for about a year and a half, and we thought we knew where all the non-LDS faiths were. Mm-hmm. One morning, a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving a year ago, I got up and I saw a Facebook post for a Christian Hispanic church in Bountiful that, that later that day, they were going to be distributing food to those in need. And down below, it said um, in small print that volunteers would be appreciated. But what had happened as a result of COVID the Utah Food Bank had decentralized their operation. And so this small Christian church here in Bountiful picked up part of the responsibility of the Utah Food Bank. And so they would have pallet loads of food dropped off. And it was this pastor and his wife were the ones that were breaking these into like 500 boxes and then distributing it to 500 people. Wow. And so I saw that and I thought, I'd never heard of this church. And furthermore, it's a Spanish church. And so I waited for the sun to come up and I, I called the pastor, not knowing what kind of reception I would get. And I introduced myself and I said, could you use some help? He said, oh, we sure could. And by 11 o'clock, and I, I called um, I called uh, some state presidents. I, I called Randy Rigby, who oversees Just Serve in Davis County. By 11 o'clock, we had 70 people there. Hmm. And we broke down the food. And then later that afternoon, the people came by and picked up the food. And then the next week... We do the same in, in anticipation of um, Thanksgiving. Well, as a part of that, then I'm developing this relationship with this pastor. And I turned to him and I said, uh, so what are your needs? What are your dreams? Mm-hmm. And he pointed to his uh, his worship facility. I hadn't seen it on the inside. It just looked like an old, big old warehouse. And he said, oh, we want to turn that into a temple. And he said, uh, we need carpet and we need this and we need that. And I said, let me see what we can do. So I... I contacted the state president in that area, who was most supportive and excited about getting involved in this, and reached out to some local merchants who donated carpet, the stake and the ward there, donated the the labor, and then a whole bunch of other things ended up donating. Well, through that, we've had a great connection with the stake to this church. Hmm. So through this experience, um, we've become very close uh, with this pastor and his wife, who's a co-pastor, Pastor Novice of the Casa de Dios, and we help them to get their facility ready to be dedicated as a mm-hmm. temple, as a house of worship for them. His apostle from Guatemala City flew up from Guatemala oh, really? for, for the dedication, which was last April. I was invited to speak 
at that dedication. Oh, wow. All in Spanish. Oh, cool. You know, the dedication was um, three and a half hours long, included about an hour and a half in the middle of a Christian rock band. And it was, it was quite remarkable because uh, it was very loud. And then it got very quiet and very reverent. And this apostle ordained this pastor, these pastors, the pastor and his wife. It was very sacred. Wow. Just a wonderful experience. Yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, it really begins, it's easy to assume in, in Utah where that you are familiar with it, what other denominations or churches there are, but to be proactive and really looking for opportunities to step in and serve and, and uh, lend a hand, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. yeah. And those opportunities are there. And we have other congregations. And, and so we are working really hard to connect the local stakes and bishops with these congregations. Mm-hmm. I'll give you one other just brief experience. Well, two others. So there's a Spanish, Hispanic church up in Kaysville that we work with. They've had needs. Um, their parking lot needs to be repaired and sealed. And they've had some issues in, in their basement with mold. And so the state communication contact has been very actively involved in in getting contractors and leaning on people for lower bids and donations. So it's it's works. But when, when we follow the procedures and as they're intend to be, things work. Yeah. So I want to pivot back to uh, your time as mission president. What was uh, what was your general approach to to his own conference? Did you have a methodology there that uh, with your own conferences? Yeah, yeah, I'd always pray about a topic, and we would have a particular theme, and we'd ask, ask the missionaries to come prepared with a five-minute talk on that theme. Oh, wow. And then at random, I would call on a missionary, and <laughs> some would play the odds <laughs> and get caught. Uh, <laughs> and you knew when they got caught, right? <laughs> one of the funniest ones was uh, I called on Sister Chudister once as a five-minute talk, <laughs> and she was not prepared. <laughs> Uh, but nice. that, that ended okay. Nice. <laughs> Anything else in zone conferences that worked? So we um, we would, it was a process that we kind of developed over time. We'd have workshops. Workshops would be led by either assistants to the president or zone leaders. We would have, from what I remember, it's been a while, but, and these, these workshops would center on uh, missionary s- skills, teaching and finding and those kinds of things. Uh, Sister Chittister would lead a workshop on might be cooking or sewing or some helpful skills that way. We would, uh, for the new missionaries coming from the, the States, we'd, we'd hold uh, a workshop. Workshops would be held in English, but for everybody else, they were held in Spanish. Hmm. I recall um, I had an assistant from Argentina who was learning, wanted to learn English. And, and, and I had uh, had him come into the office to be one of the office workers and he, one of the office missionaries, and he told all the other elders who were all from the States, said, don't speak Spanish. He said, I want to learn English, which he did. He became very, quite fluent. And then later in his mission, he became one of my assistants and he would teach the English workshops in English. Oh, wow. So now we'll roll the clock forward several years. This elder became, uh, was called as a uh, stake president. This would have been two or three years ago down on the stake that was created the very tip of South America, the Ushuaia stake. It's uh, the southernmost stake in the entire church. And Elder Lucas wow. Romano is the stake president. Wow. Just awesome. That is great. That's so great. so we'd have these workshops, and then in the afternoon, uh, we, we'd have a we'd have lunch, and then we'd, in the afternoon, uh, I, uh, Sister Chittister and I would give some spiritual message around the theme that we'd talk mm-hmm. about, and then, then we'd hear testimonies generally from those that were going home. Yeah. 
Uh, one of the things that concerned me when we got to our mission is I, I didn't feel like the sister missionaries were treated with, with great respect. And so we worked really hard on that. We'd have started by having the, the sisters, when we'd be meeting in the chaplain or zone conference, they'd sit up front. And we'd been working on this. And I kind of felt like the elders were starting to, to figure it out. And they were starting to treat the sisters with a little bit more respect. But I wasn't sure. And so I intentionally, at one one zone conference, I set up fewer chairs and tables than there were missionaries. Now, elders are really hungry. And and they'd come to zone conference, and they, I mean, they, they just wanted to eat. But my intent was, and I, and I called the sister missionaries aside, and I said, um, told them what I was doing, said, there are not enough chairs for everybody. And I want you sisters to go in last. Let's see what happens. <laughs> nice little social experiment there. <laughs> it <That's> was. Cool. <laughs> so they were excited about this. So the elders get in there. Of course, they're all sitting down, and all the chairs are taken, and here come the sister missionaries. And I believe he was his own leader at the time. Elder Pearson got really nervous when he saw these sisters couldn't find a seat to sit. And he started ordering elders away from the table <laughs> nice. and, and inviting the sister missionaries to sit down. It was just sweet. Nice. nice. Yeah. So it was taking hold there. Took, took hold. That's awesome. That's awesome. With these workshops, uh, was it the point just getting people in smaller groups so there's more some more interaction there, or what was the? Yeah, they they, they tended to be um, a very open classroom kind of a setting, and again we'd have three going on. Mm-hmm. So you because you, you could have at a zone conference, you could have typically about forty or so missionaries at a zone conference, mm-hmm. and this would break it down into a much more manageable nice. and where you get more interaction with nice. missionaries. And we do a lot of role playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that's great. And then your time as a Area 70, obviously having a lot of state conference assignments as, you know, being the visiting authority, you'd speak a lot. And obviously as a mission president, you do that as well. What have you learned about speaking, standing in front of a, a congregation and, and speaking? So that goes back to when I was first called. So when you're called in that position, you go down into, you know, the April general conference training and, mm-hmm. and to the new Area 70s, they hand you a packet and in the packet, it has your first three state conference assignments. And you're in training. And so you, you were assigned with a, a general authority. And the very first one I had was up in Canesville, if you know where that's at, um, mm. up north here in northern Utah. Oh, okay. It was assigned with Marlon K. Jensen. It's up by Hupper, kind mm-hmm. of west of Ogden. Mm-hmm. And it was a wonderful weekend. And, and he's always been one of my favorites and just a, such a great teacher. Yeah. And so afterwards, we sat down and just had a real open and candid discussion. And I asked for, asked for feedback. And, and asked for suggestions and tips. And, and it just was one of those wonderful experiences where I got, I'm sitting there with what, really one of my church heroes, and I'm able to pick his brain. And I asked him this, the, the very question about, so I'm going to be giving a lot of talks. He said, let me give you a suggestion. He said, um, I have prepared 50 talks that I know very well I can give, and I, I can give as the Spirit directs. And so you might consider that. So I, I did that. I wrote, I didn't do 50, but I probably got 20 something mm-hmm. talks that, that I, I would outline, I would have on my, my little notepad and, and as the spirit would direct. And so sometimes these state conferences would come so fast and so furious. Sometimes you'd have three weeks in a row mm-hmm. and keep in mind area 70 has also has a full-time job. So you have, your weekends are taken up and you're working 
there just isn't time. Yeah. <laughs> and so you rely heavily on the spirit and you rely heavily on that prior preparation. But it worked. Wow. And, uh, you know, you, you, you think about a weekend where uh, an Area 70 would preside. He'll speak in a, um, I'm assuming, I, I'm, I'm a little bit removed from it now, but yeah. back in my time, I'd speak in a priesthood leadership session, speak in a Saturday evening session, speak in a general session. Sometimes we'd have special meetings with new members or, in some cases, uh, Hispanic members. And so, yeah, you're just always speaking. And then uh, when I didn't have, when I wasn't assigned to a state conference, I would visit two wards in a stake in my, from one of my coordinating councils. Uh-huh. And I'd always speak there. So it, it just gets to be where it's, that's just what you do. Yeah. And no nerves. Yeah, yeah. Quite honestly, yeah, yeah, it's it's a muscle that you exercise enough that I can... think. And so here's the irony, and perhaps I shouldn't say this so that it gets out. <laughs> okay. I've not spoken since I got released. Oh boy! So who knows <laughs> and, that? And that was that was uh, four years ago. Oh, nice. I think that muscles it's atrophied. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Interesting. Any advice on you know? I remember being in the state presidency, and there's sort of this uh, anxiety of the the area authority coming in. You weren't sure, you're like his MO and, you know, what did he want to focus on? Any advice you'd give to better prepare for uh, visiting 70? Well, that's a great question because I, I sense that many times. And as I would go to these wards, I I remember telling a few bishops just to relax, just take a breath. Yeah. Because we're all in this together. Yeah. And, and we all have the same, you know, we're not coming in to judge and critique. We're, we're here to help. <laughs> and, and that's sincere. I would... Um, in preparing these for these state conferences, I'd, I'd visit multiple times with stake presidents ahead of time, hmm. and we'd plan together, and we'd talk about needs of the stake, and and hopefully through that, a stake president can sense a sincere desire to help, not to come in and judge, but to really come in, how can I help you, president? How can mm-hmm. I? These uh, stake presidents carry an awful big burden, and and I, I know that the most, probably the more mature stake presidents who've been in it a while, think they get that they understand mm-hmm. that when an authority comes from the outside they really are there to help yeah yeah that's great well this has been uh awesome any other principle or concept we we didn't touch on that maybe yeah, call, I, callings I, or something yeah, i'd gonna, like to yeah. i'd like to talk a little bit about callings if yeah. we could as an area 70 i was involved in 19 stake reorganizations hmm. which is the most remarkable experience hmm. in that as a part of that process i estimate they interviewed about 500 brethren. Out of 500, I remember only knowing one beforehand. Hmm. And yet you're tasked with a pretty enormous responsibility yeah. to identify who the Lord has prepared to be in the next state president. It's a very humbling, it's a very humbling experience, but it always works hmm. with you and, and the presiding general authority. And, and I just had remarkable experiences about that. But one of the things I learned is it's not about calling the brother with the most impressive church resume. And, and I think that relates to any of us as we're going to call a, a new primary president or new relief society president, Delaware's quorum president, whatever. It's not about who is the best prepared. It's who will the Lord have called. Mm-hmm. And so these callings are for us to grow. You know, I reflect back on all the experiences I've had in, in church callings and, and so, so very grateful for that. When we were called, uh, when we were invited down to President Monson's office and he extended the call to us to preside over Spanish-speaking mission, he shared three quotes that had been given to him 
by Harold B. Lee when he and Sister Monson had been called to preside over the Canadian mission. And uh, some of these quotes are, are recognizable. Again, uh, these came from Harold B. Lee, whom the Lord calls, the Lord qualifies. When you're on the Lord's errand, you're entitled to the Lord's help. The Lord shapes the back to bear the burden placed upon it. And so it's my witness that uh, these callings are inspired and can and should be inspired. Sometimes I think as we might as a bishopric get a little bit desperate and I'll, and I'll share an experience I had when I was a bishop up in Oregon. We had a, a young woman, our ward young woman's president, got called into a stake position. So she needed to be released. And we were struggling as a bishopric to find her replacement. One name kept coming up, but I, as the bishop, and my great wisdom kept putting it down because <laughs> this woman had a young family and her husband was the young men's president. So by logic, it just didn't make sense. And so after about a month and, and then getting pressure from the sister who was being released, I got desperate and found probably the most qualified sister in our ward that could lead the young women. And I said, brethren, let's, let's call her to be the world young, young women's president. I invited her in and extended the call. And she looked at me and she said, Bishop, can you look at me in the eye? It looked me in the eyes and tell me this is an inspired calling because it feels to me like you're desperate. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, it doesn't feel inspired to me. She said, I'll, I'll accept the call if you're telling me that this is coming by way of inspiration. I said, I can't tell you that. And so I withdrew the call. Uh -huh. Went back to my counselors and decided to give in to what I felt was pressure, but turned out to be it was the spirit directing this other sister who was whose husband was the young men's president. I invited her in, I extended the call, and she said, "Yes, I'll accept." I've been wondering wondering what's been taking you so long. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so she knew weeks before. So it worked out well. Callings uh, in the church. This is God's church. Uh, that, that's my testimony. Let me share an experience with you that I had um, when I was called as a bishop. So it was a Tuesday evening. I was called, hum greatly humbled by the call. The next night, Wednesday night, I went over to the outgoing bishop's home. who was a good friend of mine. And we sat in my car in his driveway, and he handed all of her manuals and counsel and things that a new bishop ought to know about the ward he was coming into, the responsibility he was coming into. And among those was a, a the bank statement. Now, back then, this was 1984, back then uh, we had our own ward bank account. Uh -huh. We were responsible to raise a budget, ward budget. Yeah. Uh, and, all the, and, and that was some pressure. I got home that night, and I, this again, this was a Wednesday night. I opened it up, opened up the bank statement, and the ward budget was $350 in a hole. The only reason checks weren't bouncing is the prayer bishop had not sent in the... Um, missionary funds donations, which we were supposed to send to Salt Lake. Oh, nice. Okay. For the missionary fund. But yeah. that was kept so that checks wouldn't bounce. There had been a project just before I was called as bishop, Relief Society project, that uh, was approved, but no, uh, no, uh, not, no plans had been put in place to raise the money, the $350. So I thought, oh, what a wonderful way to start my time as a bishop. <laughs> and $350 in the hole. I didn't say anything to anybody. Didn't say anything to my wife. I just got on my knees and asked for help. And I just, as a young bishop, just pouring out my heart. That Sunday, I went to church. After church, this man came up to me, a member of our ward, and handed me an envelope. And he said, uh, Bishop, you're probably not aware. He said, I do property appraisal for the church every now and then, and, and they pay me. And, and 
here's a check you do with it as you see fit. I opened the envelope and the check was for $350. Wow. That's great. <laughs> and so I, I learned early on as, as my predecessor told me, and I should back up to my, to that, uh, our little meeting in, in his driveway. He said, you will learn very shortly whose church this is. Hmm. And he said, I wish every member of the church had the opportunity to serve as a bishop for at least a month. Yeah. He would see the Lord's hand firsthand. And so I had that very real experience of many others that, that follow, but that very real one just a few days later. Yeah, that's powerful. Love that. Last question I have for you is just as you reflect on uh, your life and various leadership opportunities and callings, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Wow, what a powerful question. I think being a leader has helped me feel and see the way and, and know the way that God loves his children. So I'll give you an example. So I mentioned uh, nine, as a Area 70, I was assigned to 19 stake organizations. In addition to that, I presided over 55 state conferences. So however many thousands of people that would be, it happened every time when I would stand in front of that congregation, generally not knowing a soul, I could feel God's love for his children. And so that through leadership and as I, and I, the experience I just shared with you, seeing God's hand in this great work and being in people's, involved in people's lives with various challenges and seeing how God loves his children. He truly loves his children. And so that helps me as a follower to sustain those who are trying to carry out God's work, if that makes sense. It helps me recognize that this is God's work and, and I, I want to do my part to bring to pass his work and his glory. And that concludes this How I Lead interview. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I would ask you, could you take a minute and drop this link in an email, on social media, in a text, wherever it makes the most sense, and share it with somebody who could relate to this this experience. And this is how we, how we develop as leaders, just hearing what the other guy's doing, trying some things out, testing, adjusting for your area. And uh, that's where great leadership's discovered, right? So we would love to have you uh, share this with uh, somebody in this calling or a related calling, and that would be great. And also, if you know somebody, uh, any type of leader, who would be a fantastic guest on the How I Lead segment, reach out to us. Go to leadingsaints.org slash contact. Maybe send this individual an email letting them know that you're going to be suggesting their name for this interview. We'll reach out to them and uh, see if we can line them up. So again, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact. And there you can submit all the information and let us know. And maybe they will be on a future How I Lead segment on the Leading Saints podcast. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.